Hey, happy Friday, listeners. I am Jeff Cross, your host of Friends with Employee Benefits in HR. And don't you think it's time we bring some good news to you? The, the, the news has been not so good the last few months. So uh, we have had the pleasure of virtually sitting down with a handful of Connecticut nonprofits to help shine a light on all the great things that they've been doing as they've adapted and persevered through these challenging times. So grab your coffee and get ready to be inspired. First up, here's Sabrina Trochi, president and CEO of Wheeler Clinic. Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here today. Sabrina, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about Wheeler Clinic and, and the mission and the vision and, uh, and what you guys are doing for the community. Wheeler is a leading statewide provider of health care and human services. We serve over 30,000 um, adults, children, families each year. The 30,000 individuals come across uh, 90% of the state, so we touch 90% of the cities and towns in Connecticut. Our services um, range from primary care to specialty behavioral health to community justice programming, special education programming. Um, so we have a very strong um, health and uh, human service background. Awesome. And how, how many employees or associates work for Wheeler Clinic? We have approximately 1,000 staff. Um, our staff is very diverse. So we have medical providers. We have a dentist on staff. We have behavioral health clinicians. We have teachers. Um, so we have a wide variety of staff. One thing we do need to talk about is the coronavirus, and I have to ask, what are some of the challenges that the coronavirus has presented to the Wheeler Clinic as a not-for-profit? So there's a number of challenges. Um, one of them, because we're such a complex system, we, um, as I mentioned, we have about a thousand employees. We run over a hundred different programs and services across the state. Um, across 30 plus locations in Connecticut. And so when you think about Corona and how it's impacted our ability to, um, to work face to face with patients, um, the impact has been dramatic. We have been very fortunate that we've been able to, in a very short period of time, really shift our, um, our model of care and our delivering services overwhelmingly at this point, about 90 to 95%, depending on the day, um, remotely. So patients have access to our staff via telehealth, via telephonically, um, and patients who we deem need to be seen in person, we still have the ability to see them in person. And so, you know, when you think about COVID-19 and the impact our shift really has been how do we continue to deliver the care that our adults, children, and families need while keeping our staff safe and patients safe. This sort of engaging remotely or, or, or via technology, is that new? Is, is this something you guys had to do as a result of, the, uh, of COVID or were you engaging in that way with those that you serve any, anyway? It's, um, it was completely new for wow. Wheeler and for Connecticut. So Connecticut um, was one of the, the last states in the country to adopt telehealth as part of the Connecticut Medicaid program. As soon as the state of Connecticut um, approved telehealth as the modality that we could implement, within days, we were able to really shift our models we had our information technology staff deployed to all of our locations to help staff understand how to navigate our telehealth system and importantly, how to support patients in um, downloading what they needed to download and connect so that they had continued and ongoing access to their primary care providers, their behavioral health clinicians, their psychiatry team. I'm guessing you had some small portion at least of, of the, the folks that you're serving who just don't have the technology or, or, the, or the means to engage telephonically or, or through a computer. Is that correct? When the state first approved telehealth specifically, uh, it had to be teleconferencing face-to-face, -face, visually seeing um, the patient. What we quickly did is advocate at the state level that we knew we had patients who um, did not have the technology needed to be able to support that type of application. As part of the advocacy, the state within a few days came back and approved 
the use of telephonic only services. What we're finding today is having the flexibility of being able to offer either modality, um, we are able to, um, to really work with all of our patients. If a patient does not, continues not to have um, access to either a telephone or a computer laptop, um, we will see that patient in, 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 in person in one of our locations. I think you said 92% of, of your, of what you do now is being done telephonically and, and about 8% 8, 8 though still need to have that face-to-face -face contact. Is that, is that yeah, right? So so we're around 90 to 95% um, remotely. So that could be either yeah. teleconferencing or via telephonic. And 5% are patients that we deem still need to be seen in person. Have the needs of the folks that you serve changed at all? Are they needing things from you because of COVID that they didn't need before, that you didn't have to deliver before? So fundamentally, we haven't seen a significant change on what's needed. Do know that, um, especially now, our patients do need continued access to primary care services. They need continued access to behavioral health services and supports. And so um, our ability to ensure that we will offer that um, accessibility uh, in any modality that best meets the need for that patient, we will continue to do what we need to do to make that happen. What has fundamentally changed is, of course, um, our staff and how we're supporting our staff. So we do, at this point, have um, staff who are um, rotating on days that they're physically in the office and days that they are offering their services right from their homes. And so, you know, really looking at the balance between work life and home life and ensuring that we're supporting our staff during these very challenging times. Yeah, it's, it's true, isn't it, Sabrina, that folks who take care of other people for a living sometimes forget to take care of themselves, right? And that's the message that we're, um, we're putting out there often, um, mm -hmm. reminding staff around mindfulness, around really self-care, and looking for those opportunities to step back and to be able to ensure that they have the care that they need to continue to provide supports to their patients, continue to be, provide supports to their families and to themselves. What about volunteers? Do, does, do you have folks who volunteer at Wheeler Clinic? We do. So our, um, our board of trustees are 14 individuals that volunteer um, a lot of their time to ensure that we are, we are on top of what we need to be on top of and that we continue to address any issues or concerns that are, are coming our way. And with everything changing so quickly with, um, with COVID-19, our board really has had to be really engaged and has had to, to really be involved in, in a lot more than they have been in the past. So we continue to um, work very closely with our board. We also have community volunteers. Um, so we have a corporation, for example, um, in our local area, the Mott Corporation. Um, they have a team of dedicated volunteers that are available to assist us as needed. And um, a week before, uh, a lot of the COVID um, implications, the shutdowns and, um, and, and really having staff move from working in the office to working at home, they were on site and helped us stuff over 1,000 care bags for our patients. The care bags include items like hand sanitizers, wipes, um, of soap, um, so really just some basic need items that we know um, many of our patients don't have regular access to. Um, and so we wanted to make sure we were able to pull those together. And I've got to tell you, to pull a thousand of those together, um, okay. they were here, the volunteers were here all day. Um, I think they took a short break, but they worked aggressively to make sure that we could get those out to each of our locations. Wow, that's great. And, and all of those were from Mott Corporation? The volunteers were all from Mott Corporation. The actual items um, that, that, were, um, that we put into the care bags, we raised dollars for uh, our basic needs account or our basic needs grant. And that is, um, we recognize that many of our patients um, 
in addition to the services that we offer, do need access to other items like food, like transportation, like um, Tylenol, for example, is one of the items that right now is coming up as a need for our patients. And so we do annual fundraisers to, um, to replenish the basic needs funds so that if any patient presents with a barrier to care, that we're able to help that patient with that barrier because we don't want that to prevent patients from coming in for the services that they need. Yeah, so uh, how, how are you keeping the volunteers engaged now? You talked about an example just before the, we'll call it the shutdown of the state, that you got some folks who came together and spent the whole day pulling these packages together. But now with the COVID pandemic, how are you keeping volunteers engaged so we continue to um, to look for remote opportunities. Um, so you know we um, we have a, a group of volunteers currently working on our golf tournament. Um, so that committee uh, continues to work um, remotely and identifying potential sponsors and really looking for um, contributing to what we know is is a significant event for Wheeler. Um, and for our patients and for our basic needs funds. Um, one Digital is actually one of those um, supporters and really flexible with us to ensure that, that we don't, uh, in the midst of COVID-19, when you know, we can easily move away from some of these core pieces, recognizing that um, the golf tournament and other related items like that are what help us continue to deliver the care that we need to deliver. Um, and so we're continuing to stay focused on those pieces. What about other fundraisers? I'm sure you've had to pivot in other ways of, of, of raising money um, and get a little bit creative there, right? We have. And so, um, you know, we're doing quite a bit uh, remotely. We're um, keeping our, our funders, we're keeping the community well aware of the steps that we are taking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the message is really clear that although um, there are implications uh, based on COVID, we are continuing to be responsive to our community's needs. We're continuing to be responsive to individuals who we serve, who are over, overwhelmingly individuals in vulnerable um, communities and vulnerable populations that need the ongoing support. And that's a message that we're continuing to put out there for our community, for our funders. We have not shut down our services. We will not shut down the services. We have 30,000 individuals across Connecticut who rely on us for that care, and we will continue to deliver that care. That's awesome. That's uh, perseverance, I guess, is the word that comes to mind, right? It sure is. So on that note, any, any stories, Sabrina, that you'd like to share with us? Something good that's coming out of Wheeler's efforts right now? So what I'd like to say is um, I, I think it's absolutely amazing that we have um, a thousand staff and over a hundred programs and um, in a very short period of time have really figured out how to continue all of those services and, and keep our staff all engaged. One area that I, I, I think is absolutely amazing, in Plainville, we run a special education program. It's a private school that serves students from approximately 50 different um, towns and cities across Connecticut. There's about 150 students at that school from kindergarten through um, 12th grade. And as you can imagine, um, when COVID hit and we followed the state um, in, in closing the school, we were one of the first of the private um, special education programs to move to an online remote learning platform. And if you think about the needs of children with special needs, I, I don't think anyone would have said it could have happened or would have been feasible to do it this way. But every day I see the, um, the curriculum that the teachers are using, how they're engaging the students, how they're 
um, ensuring that students have the supports they need to be successful within the school environment. To me, that's absolutely amazing that we were able to, to turn that around within a week and move a program completely to an online learning uh, program. So I'm very proud of, uh, and that's one example of how we really have been able to shift and, and ensure that we're meeting the needs. Yeah, that's awesome. If you think about homeschooling in general and, and the challenge that that presents for you know, the parents of students, it's got to be even more challenging when it's special needs students and, and you know, it's just kind of a different level of, of learning and, and engagement and that's got to be super challenging for you guys to be able to deploy that that quickly too is really amazing. It really, it really is. And then, um, you know, to see the energy of the teachers, we have an internal platform where they're able to share successes and they're posting videos of experiments they're doing from their homes to engage the students, videos that the kids have, have, have contributed to and, and the work and the artwork that's happening. It's just amazing. Is, is that something we could take a look at on your website? Some of the some of the artwork or stuff that's been happening through that remote learning or, or do you not have that available for the public to, to see? Great question. And um, our communication department is working on pulling that together, not only for the school districts, but for the parents to see what, what is happening within the remote learning. Um, I think we're pulling that together now and we would be more than willing to share that. Maybe you could auction off some art and uh, it'll be a creative way to raise some money. That's a great idea. <laughs> Sabrina, if, what is the one ask that you would have for those listening to this podcast right now? So the one ask I would say is um, remember the special situation that um, community-based organizations like Wheeler are in. Um, we are key in providing health and safe um, access to care to many of the communities in Connecticut. Um, that we are providing vital services, we're taking care of your neighbors, we're keeping our cities and towns healthier and connected, um, and we're a nonprofit organization doing that. So I, I, I would just put that out there as um, something for others to think about. Thank you so much. Before we go though, we always end with each guest with a few rapid fire questions so that our audience can get to know you a little bit better personally. Are you game for that? Sure. Top of mind answer, so don't think too hard about it. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? You too. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Flying. If you weren't doing what you do now, Sabrina, what would you be doing? Oh boy, that one's a hard one. I've got to tell you, it, it would still be very closely in line with what I'm doing today. Um, I, I've always worked in um, in cities within across Connecticut and really meeting the needs of individuals um, who don't traditionally have equal access to healthcare and, and where health disparities is, is evident. So it would still be within that realm. And lastly, our theme this year at One Digital is being bold. So Sabrina, what does being bold mean to you? Being bold to me is not being afraid to take a step that others are not willing to take. It's um, not being afraid to do some things differently, understanding that sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't work, but at least not wondering what if I had. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for joining us on the podcast today. Great. Thank you so much. Take care and stay safe. So we are very excited to have Sarah Leathers, founder and CEO of Healing Meals Community Project with us. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. How about if we start with you taking a minute and just explaining your organization's mission and, and vision and what you do at Healing Meals? We are we're an organization. We're four years old. And really what we're about is inspiring our community um, to really take action on um, taking care, better care of themselves. And we, we focus on, we actually have a dual mission. We provide organic meals for families facing a health crisis. And we empower our youth volunteers. Um, and they learn important life skills, 
um, but also more importantly about how good it feels to give back to their community. And our vision really is, um, what we like to say is, <clears throat> it's a community where food heals. And that is on so many different levels, how food can uh, be a big piece to the puzzle of healing and nourishment and love and connection. So Sarah, I mean, you know, unfortunately we're, we're doing this, recording this in, in tough times for everybody and, you know, the whole uh, pandemic, the coronavirus. And so we want to ask, you know, what sort of challenges has the COVID-19 pandemic created for, for Healing Meals? Well, I'm going to start by saying um, that we have so many, we had already had so many good protocols and processes in place uh, that we didn't have to do a lot differently than we were doing before. Um, but what's, I think the biggest challenge is on a normal kitchen day, uh, whether we're prepping or cooking or packaging our meals, we can have anywhere from 15 to 20 volunteers working together to get those meals out. Now, obviously we can't do that. And so we've had to kind of spread our shifts out. We've had to uh, spread our staff out. Um, we wanna make sure that um, our, our shifts keep the same number of volunteers and the same volunteers on if possible. So that if, if by chance somebody on that shift uh, is exposed or gets sick, you know, then that whole shift is out um, for a couple of weeks. And so um, we've been able to uh, maintain our capacity um, serving our clients uh, with a smaller staff. Um, unfortunately, right now, we don't have any of the youth coming into the kitchen. Uh, I shouldn't say that. We just started this week um, on a completely separate shift. So, you know, those are two big things because we really had to rethink uh, how to do this. Uh, we've had to change up our menus a bit, uh, simplify some of the menus so that, you know, five or six people can get out uh, 400 meals um, on, a, on a day. And the other is we have a lot of volunteers who are older and retired. And, you know, many of those are choosing for the right reason to shelter in place. And, you know, we completely understand that. Um, and then I think, you know, for any nonprofit, the biggest factor right now is fundraising. For us, we had a fundraiser in June uh, that we're obviously not going to be able to do and another, our largest one in October. And so we've had to get creative as to how to raise hmm. some funds um, right now. And I, I feel good about what we're doing, um, but it's definitely been, a, you know, a total shift in some areas of, of what we're needing to do. Yeah, well, that's certainly not surprising that it's had a big, a big impact. Have, uh, just a quick question: Have have you had any challenges finding any ingredients that you need? I know you've kind of changed your menus, but has there been a, a scarcity of of of, uh, of ingredients for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, that was a great question. So we are supported. Um, we we get a lot of our food um, through Baldor down out of the Bronx. Um, and then UNFI is a wholesaler. And then we actually have shoppers every week who go out um, when we can't get, you know, some of the ingredients from those other two places. So not only are we scarcer on shoppers, right, because there's a real um, discomfort in having to go to the grocery store, but we also want, don't want to be going to the grocery store and taking, um, you know, 20 cans of tomatoes off the shelf when we know other people are needing them. We have the trouble with even our wholesalers. We needed 50 pounds of potatoes as an example this week and they didn't get delivered. So we have gotten really good at punting um, and you know we shift what we're going to do. We make some adjustments um, and we still get the meals out. Um, so we've learned nothing is set in stone until the food comes in and we're actually cooking it. Well, that's great. So you're, you're still getting the, the, the meals out. Um, so you're still supporting the, the, the community, your stakeholders as, as you have been. But have, have their needs changed at all due to this? Oh, yes. We work with clients who are medically fr fr really fragile right now more than ever. Um, and a big part of our population is older and living alone. 
and low income. And so we know how important it is to be able to support these clients, not only with meals, uh, but also having them feel connected. Um, and what we have just started doing um, is with, we, we got a little bit of funding from uh, the Northwest Community Foundation, and we're able to support a group of out there with actual a bag of groceries as well. So our clients are not only getting our five meals plus our immune broth, but they're getting a bag of groceries. And that's really helping them to limit um, them out in the grocery stores and um, you know, not uh, having that fear of getting even sicker. That's great. So you've actually expanded the service, which during this challenging time, which is pretty amazing. Are there new stakeholders? Are there, are there yes. uh, the people that you're serving now that you never really had to think about serving before? So we actually have been serving. Uh, we have a family where husband and wife uh, both were in the hospital with COVID and are now home recovering. But the other thing we're doing now uh, that we started about four weeks ago is we are serving um, our local healthcare workers. So we make our, this immune broth, which is an organic vegetable broth with adaptogenic herbs that are you know, known to really help build the, boost the immune system. Uh, we know our healthcare workers are tired and run down and stressed. Um, so we started uh, four weeks ago. We now serve three hospitals. Twice a week, we deliver bags of our immune broth uh, it's about a 12-ounce serving, energy bites, so they're like a protein bite, personal note cards of thanks to all the um, healthcare workers. Uh, so we've served about 350 healthcare workers so far, um, and we're going to continue to do that for as long as possible. And we're getting great feedback from those healthcare workers that it is um, such a big help to them. I'm sure. I mean, you know, obviously kudos to them for, for doing what they do, but to, to you as well for thinking about that and, and you know, serving the people who are serving us, those essential workers that are really, you know, they're, they're at war right now, really, you know. Right, exactly. You know, the other interesting thing that had also shifted for us was we had started a client nutrition and wellness program uh, in March. Um, and the idea was that not only do we serve our clients for 12 weeks with, you know, these healthy meals, but what happens after those 12 weeks? How do we build the resources for that client so they feel like they can really continue on their own down a healthier path than they were before? With the help of Cigna, we have this new client nutrition program, and we had a great class in March, and, you know, we've got, you know, we had the, basically the whole next year planned out. Well, you know, now you can't have that class. And so we adjusted. What we decided to do was um, actually reach more of our clients. And um, we put together a packet that would have been part of that class in April. Um, and we put a, a whole package together, but we actually sent it out to 175 of our past and current clients. Um, with a, a handwritten note from one of our youth, and that's how we're engaging our youth volunteers, but also a self-addressed note card back to Healing Meals. We basically started an old-fashioned pen pal program, um, helping to you know, keep our clients um, engaged. Uh, as we know, there's so much disconnection right now. Um, I even find you, know, you do go to the grocery store, no one really looks at each other um, anymore. They're just kind of in there doing their thing and they want to get out. Yeah. Um, and we know how important connection is, um, more important than ever now. Um, and we've had a wonderful response back um, from our clients about um, how much they have loved the notes and how they can't wait for the next one. We'll have something come out um, again as the months come on every month. Sarah, that's something that the self-addressed uh, and stamped envelope back to create this pen pal situation. That's something new as well since since yes. we got, yeah. Yes. Yes. Huh. We had not done that before. And we get notes back from our clients quite often. Um, but this was really about how to engage them and continue to engage them. Oh, that's really great. So you, you talked about keeping the, the teenage um volunteers engaged by having them write the letters what else are you doing though to make sure that you're not losing 
the engagement of, of the broader volunteer community? Because it sounds like you've had to, I mean, they can't, you, you've had to reduce the number of people who can be there physically at any given point in time. And so what else do you do to kind of keep everyone on, on point and enthusiastic during this? We're doing a lot of um, social media. We're doing uh, a regular email blast out to all of our volunteers, keeping them abreast of what we're doing. Um, we're asking all of our volunteers if they're interested in um, writing notes to our healthcare workers, to our clients. Uh, luckily, right now, we're, I think we're so lucky that we're coming into this whole issue in the spring because the gardens, um, we have 50 raised beds here up at our farm. Mm. And we have another um, uh, farm in Simsbury, uh, a family that uh, supports us um, with beautiful heirloom produce um, from their one acre property. And um, we're in need of gardeners. We're in need of, of volunteers to help with that. And the beautiful thing is you can be outside. Uh, you can separate, you can get eight or 10 people uh, up gardening together, um, even if you don't have any gardening skills. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that, that uh, you know, can be done. So that's been a great way to um, engage both our youth uh, and uh, our adult volunteers. Um, we have a lot of, um, obviously, a lot of help needed with um, drivers, uh, our delivery angels who uh, deliver our meals to the healthcare workers and to our clients. And so that's a way that we're keeping, you know, quite a few of our volunteers um, engaged. But it's hard. It's definitely hard. It's something we talk about all the time. We, we really miss uh, that, that really full energy in the kitchen um, mm -hmm. with the music going and people chit-chatting and you know, it's different now, um, and we're really looking at um, how do we continue to engage um, these amazing people who have committed so much energy and time to Healing Meals. Are you now, though, still in need of more volunteers, or, or are you challenged just to keep everybody busy? Like, are you still looking for, for additional, for more help? Yeah. You know, I, I never want to turn a volunteer away. Yeah, um, because there are highs and lows of, you know, sometimes we're like, wow, we've just got so many. We can't we can't fit everybody in the kitchen. And then we have times where, um, you know, like, oh, shoot, who, how are we going to fill the delivery angels uh, this week? So there's always um, again, there's always a need. A lot of our volunteers, you know, come and go, whether they're teenagers and they're you know, they're in sports or they're in other things during the school year. They have, you know, months they're available and months they're not available. So we always encourage people to get involved. Um, it, obviously, right now it's a little bit trickier, um, but if we can figure out a way to engage you. I had a gal reach out uh, yesterday and there's some administrative things that need um, done and that she could do from home. And I said, oh my gosh, yes you could take a number of things off my plate right now. Any other stories you want to share with us, like something good that coming out of these, these efforts that you're putting in during the COVID virus? What, 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 what other good news do you have for us here? Yeah, you know, we, we try really hard every day to see all the good. Um, I, when this whole thing started, I, I think what I continually say to the team is I remain overly optimistic that we have seen our community and the community around us truly rally together, um, you know, to provide meals to our clients, to support healthcare workers, to support your neighbor. I mean, it's what we're seeing is just really getting back to basics about what's important. Um, and it's even for us, in, you know, at Healing Meals, we're looking at what are we learning from this? What are we going to be better at because of this? Um, every day that we have meals go out to our clients, there's so much gratitude to everybody who was involved. Not mm -hmm. only from, you know, I think about the Baldor guy who drives up from New York to bring the meals, uh, to bring the food, you know, to our delivery angels. Um, so we, we have really stopped to pause and be grateful for everybody who, who is involved from our, you know, the volunteers to the donors, um, so I think that's one major thing that 
has been a wonderful story. The emails and the cards that we get back from the clients, having a youth volunteer reach out to say how much they miss it, um, it says a lot about what we're doing and how important it is to them to be part of something like this. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think all of that is really good. Um, yesterday, I had the um, honor of being uh, invited um, on a Zoom uh, congratulation uh, meeting with one of our past clients who completed her, uh, she had her last treatment after a year and a half. Um, and just that, just to be included in that um, was really special. You know, we provided her with meals. She got involved in the nutrition uh, classes. She came to uh, some of our community dinners last year. She really grabbed a hold of making changes in her life. Um, and we were a part of that. And so that feels, you know, really good. And we were, I was really happy to, to be able to congratulate her um, yesterday. And I think this is really inspirational in that, you know, not only did this pandemic slow you guys down, but you're, you're, it sounds like, you know, you're really doing more now than ever. And you've expanded some of your services. You talked about a few things you're doing today that you didn't used to do. Uh, and, I, and I think there's a great lesson to be learned there where it's, this is almost like a, an opportunity for for, uh, for nonprofit organizations to think about, well, how do we serve our communities differently, but maybe even more more than we have been in the past, you know, making, making lemonade out of lemons uh, in a big way, right? Right. What's the one uh, ask that you might have for those listening? You know, and I, I hate to go this down this road, but we're a nonprofit. And, um, you know, for us, more than ever, because we have ramped up, because we are serving more people, uh, because our staff is, is limited and working really, really hard, um, we, we need that financial support. Um, we don't know what's going to happen six months from now. Um, we, don't, you know, we don't know if we're going to be able to have our large fundraiser. But what we do know is that you know, these are uncertain times, and we are an essential business. And we want to continue to support these clients, these medically fragile clients, to keep them well-nourished and healthy and out of the hospital so that our hospital workers can take care of those right now who really need it. We just want to make sure we can continue to do that um, throughout this year and next. So, you know, I think that's, that's the biggest ask right now is just really if you can support us um, in any way financially, um, that's truly a gift. Sarah, uh, we always end with each guest with a few what we call rapid fire questions that uh, that we ask so that our listeners can get to know you personally a little bit better. Are you are you good to do that? Oh, always. <laughs> Why okay. not? So as the, as rapid fire suggests, quick answer. Don't think too hard about that. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? I'm going old school. Cat Stevens. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? A healer. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? I can't imagine doing anything else. I knew that was going to be a tough one for you, to be <laughs> honest. I, I, as I was reading, I'm like, you know what? She's doing exactly what she wants to be doing. I am. And, and I say that because I think about all of the jobs and all of the experience I've had in my life. It has led me to this, and I am so grateful for that. Best answer so far. Uh, and finally, our, our theme at One Digital this year, Sarah, is being bold. So what does that mean to you? What does being bold mean to you? Huh, great question. So, you know, as the leader of this organization, I have to continually be bold. I have to continually challenge myself. I have to continually challenge the team. And I have to continually challenge the direction that we're headed. And to do that, you have to be bold. You have to be willing to take risks. Um, and I'm learning that. And, and it's a challenge for me. Um, and I keep working at it. And I make mistakes. But um, I will continue to be bold. Thanks again, Sarah, for joining us today. Jeff, thanks so much. Um, I wish you guys all the best over at One Digital. We're so lucky to partner with you. Yeah, and we're lucky to partner with you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. Take care. And finally, we welcome Dan Rizendi, Executive Director at the Connecticut Junior Republic, or CJR, as we'll refer to it. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start with if you could give us an overview of CJR's mission and vision and what you guys do. Uh, well, CJR is an organization that's been around over 100 years. Uh, we have uh, our mission is to provide treatment and care, education and family support to troubled young people, uh, at risk kids, and families that need the support so they have a chance to become productive members of their society. We basically have about 15 to 1600 kids and families currently active within our organization. We have a staff of about 250 people, uh, and we are in 11 locations across the state running 33 different programs. Any of those 1,500 or so um, folks that you serve, is that all residential, or what's, how does that comprise? What does that make up? Yeah, we have a continuum of care now. Although we're a historically uh, based or a residential facility up in Litchfield, yeah. Uh, our services are across the spectrum now. So we provide early intervention and prevention services, educational programming, uh, community-based behavioral health services and aftercare programming, uh, substance abuse treatment, uh, group home care, residential treatment. Uh, so we have a whole spectrum now of services uh, that enable us to meet kids at multiple levels when they come to see us, we have a program we believe that fits their individualized needs. That's great. What sort of challenges have you run into, Dan, as a result of, of COVID-19? Well, you know, uh, everybody has a plan, right, or a disaster plan. Uh, until you have to implement it, you have no idea how it's gonna work. <laughs> you know, and uh, with this pandemic, it really hit us hard, right, on all levels. So we've had to transition our programming uh, significantly uh, to enable us to provide a, a high level of care and treatment for our, for our families and kids. So we've taken all of our community-based health programs and made them into telehealth systems. So we're providing home-based programming, clinical intervention to all of our clients via technology. We've transitioned our school programs to all uh, distance learning models. So uh, now we have teachers working from their homes with our students from their homes, supporting their families uh, through this process, which is a big part of what we're doing now. Uh, within our residential service sector, uh, as you know, uh, we have kids that we're responsible for 24 seven uh, that have a variety of behavioral health issues, uh, trauma, some, some physical health issues as well. So, you know, being responsible for kids in that level of care has been really challenging because, you know, we've had uh, some of our units become infected uh, with uh, the virus. So we've had to have our staff really stand up and, you know, do yeoman's work. They're, they're on the front line. They're, I consider them essential employees uh, dealing with, uh, you know, high risk kids, high need kids in an environment that is really, really challenging. Plus our kids are pretty much locked down too. So they can't go anywhere. Uh, we can't take them off of recreational programming. You know, everything has to be in house. I mean, we have kids that can't even see their families at this point because of the whole uh, isolation issues. So that's really, really been challenging for us. I, I would imagine that the kids normally, uh, the, the residents are have roommates or is that, am I making a bad assumption? No, no. Our, our residential programs are very relational based and uh, very, we try to make the units very family focused. So, yeah. you know, there's typically uh, eight youth in a unit. Uh, they all have roommates or a couple of them have single bedrooms, depending on their individualized needs. Yeah. Uh, our group home is very much like a transitional living house for uh, young adults and older adolescents. So those kids typically are you know, well ingrained into the community, go to school in the community, work in the community. Uh, are part are members of that community, and so those programs have all had to be contracted and to be just really isolated and quarantined for health right. and safety reasons. So, uh, so you you but you continue to serve the community. So you're you're doing a lot now telephonically uh, with with telehealth with the distance learning. Uh, you've had to pivot within the within the residences. Uh, and, and kind of just kind of change the way you, you, you do business, but have, have the needs of, of your stakeholders changed at all because of the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. So 
I'll give you I'll give you a couple examples of how we've had to deal with some of those changes. Many of our families are typically uh, low income families, so we've been delivering food to them, medical supplies, cleaning supplies, because some of them also have uh, health issues, so they can't leave the house either. They're in high risk yeah. categories. So we've been doing a lot of food deliveries, shopping for people um, with our students that don't have the technology to access our telehealth systems and our uh, distance learning models. We've been delivering laptops, uh, desktops. We've been repurposing some of our old equipment here for them to use for their children in their homes. Um, you know, some of our telehealth systems have been uh, utilized significantly more. Uh, think about being in your home, maybe a, a, a three bedroom apartment with four or five kids and you're trying each at a different grade level. You're trying to do their schoolwork. You may have to do your own job online. So the, 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 the dynamics of those family units have really changed and created a lot of tension, a lot of stress. Uh, a lot of our families have to deal with trauma. That has just increased that. Self-isolation and depression, anxiety. So all of these issues we're dealing with on a much higher level. And we're anticipating... Uh, our behavioral health services to probably increase 25 to 30 percent uh, when this subsides in the summertime because we think the families are going to need that level of support. These things, Dan, like uh, the delivering of food and cleaning supplies and medical supplies and Chromebooks and laptops, these, these were not things you were doing before, were they? <laughs> no, these were not items that were budgeted. I mean, we're, huh. again, we pride ourselves on engagement. You know, when someone says, what does CJR do well with its population? We're really good at engagement. You know, we want our kids to like our services. We want them to use our services. We want our families to feel part of the process. And so that's, this has really changed how we've had to do business. Mm. And so, you know, we like our families to come to us or we go to them. And being, you know, away from them and having this separation has changed how we've had to really do business. And, you know, I think that the families and the kids are very – um, supportive of these new efforts that we're trying because they know we're there to support them. But that said, there's, there's challenges, you know, our, our clinicians, for example, you know, is no longer a, you know, a nine to six job, right? Because families are calling us uh, electronically and through the computer systems, nine, 10, 11 at night, because that's when the crisis is and the issues are happening. You know, how can we process it so that everybody's safe and that we can, you know, try to educate people on how to, what to do differently next time. You mentioned, you kind of led to a, another question that I had in mind. So you're doing all these things that you previously didn't do and therefore had not budgeted for. So how, how do you, maybe you can't answer this question quickly, but how do you, how do you handle that, these non-budgeted expenses? So we have had to work with all of our state contracts where we were able to, to support some of our new uh, needs, right? So, yeah. for example, within the judicial branch, uh, we run a lot of residential programs for kids in the judicial system. And so they have specific needs now because we need to contact their parents uh, through telehealth systems. We need to have more cleaning supplies. We need more staff because our staff have been ill and they've been having to stay home for 14 days. And so we need overtime costs. They have been very receptive to that. So we've been able to negotiate higher rates for some programming. Um, within our behavioral health system, though, where we're getting third-party reimbursements through, you know, the Medicaid system or through private health insurance, you know, those rates have stayed the same and our costs have gone up significantly in those programs. Mm. Educationally, you know, we've had to purchase laptops and Chromebooks and such, which is not budgeted, you know, so we're lucky that we have a very robust uh, financial uh, endowment that supports us, but yet, you know, we have to find a way to maintain that mm. because our fundraising efforts have been hurt too. We had a golf tournament that was scheduled to be played on uh, June 15th, which is one of our largest fundraisers. Yeah. Uh, one digital has always been a part of that process. They've always had uh, golfers that we appreciate that support. You, you, by the way, you guys always put on a great tournament at the, at the Torrington country club, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, but we typically raise anywhere from 60 to $80,000 during that event. So, you know, that number is typically used for the next fiscal year. So, Jeff, just to, just to kind of wrap that up. So, I think we're in a good place this year. But as the pandemic goes from a health crisis 
to an economic crisis. Yeah. Right. That's what I'm really concerned that for not just CJR, but for a lot of social service agencies that, you know, the state budgets are going to be a lot different than they anticipated three months ago. And so how is that going to impact programming services going forward when the needs may be as high as they've ever been? And yet the resources will significantly be shrunk because the tax revenues coming in are going to be lower. Yeah. Businesses have been closed. So, you know, until that restarts, you know, we're planning on this being a long-term uh, transition back to the to, to normal. I want to ask you, Dan, you said CJR has somewhere around 250 employees, but do you also have uh, rely on, on volunteers or not? Yes, we do. So okay. we have a, a large volunteer base. We have a very active board of directors and an advisory council that support us uh, both financially and also uh, with community relations, community support, expertise in specific areas. Uh, we have a group called the Litchfield Aid of Connecticut, which sole purpose is to do fundraising efforts for CJR so that we can supplement our programs and support our kids and families with basic needs and with these extra services, specifically now that's been really, really important. Uh, we're, we're lucky to have them as part of our organization. So probably together we have, you know, hundreds of volunteers that help us through various efforts, whether it's fundraising, uh, community support and advocacy, uh, stewardship, et cetera. Well, what are you doing to keep the volunteers engaged right now? We have been very efficient with Zoom <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of virtual meetings. Uh, we're sending out newsletters to people every week. Uh, we send them out to our staff and our workforce to keep them updated across our 11 sites. We're sending them out to all of our volunteer base and also to our board of directors. So we're sending out constant communications on has things changed daily. Uh, as the state starts to phase programming back in, we need to obviously then be careful on how we do that as well. Uh, safety being first consideration for our staff and our families and kids. And, you know, this has been. Um, an area where constant communication and constant availability has been really, really important. And our volunteer base has been tremendous with that. Are you always looking for, for new volunteers or are you kind of putting that on hold right now? Well, I think when we go to uh, our new extended fundraising pro uh, issues that we're going to have, yeah. We're going to be looking for some new volunteers, you know, we're going to need some new support systems. Yeah. Because yeah. Our, our large scale events may be smaller events in the future, right? We yeah. may have, instead of having an event for a golf tournament with 200 people, for example, we may have to do smaller, more uh, concise and pointed fundraising efforts. We may need to do more, um, you know, Facebook based, uh, informative based fundraising efforts. Because again, you know, our programs and our contracts, what I like to tell people is that our contracts and programs pay enough for us to come to the house to provide the service. The extra supports we, we have enable us to bring dinner to that event, enable us to have clothing for those kids to go to school, enable us to help them pay with some of their rent services, and all those wraparound basic needs and supports that without those in place, the treatment itself is not enough. Are, are there some kind of silver linings, some some stories that you can share, some some good that's coming out of all this, all the work that CGR is doing, and how you've adapted and 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 changed your business? Well, you know, we had a five-year strategic plan for some of these things. I think we implemented it in about a week and a half, right? <laughs> so, you know, the telehealth systems has always been something that's been moving forward within our field in telemedicine. And now uh, we're fully vested in that. I would imagine that some of that will definitely stay on in some capacity, uh, whether it is for uh, crisis services, whether it's for enhanced case management. Mm -hmm. We still want to do the face-to-face -face therapy, the face-to-face -face meetings. But, you know, for the 10-minute check-ins at night or for the, you know, the weekend uh, crisis that we can maybe help with more uh, – telephonically, we're going to utilize all these services in place. We put a lot of resources into this work. We're going to find a way to capitalize it to manage that going forward. You know, and, and that has already been helpful. We've had a case uh, where one young man was extremely depressed uh, and, and was actually suicidal, where we were able to get on the uh, phone with him, him and his parents, 
de-escalate that situation, get emergency services to the house, and have that youth taken to the hospital, where we mm -hmm. then met them at the hospital. So, you know, these systems save lives in, in cases like this. Uh, we had another case where uh, we're doing um, both uh, distance learning with a family of a seven-year-old and also uh, behavioral health services uh, through telehealth. And the young man had his birthday. He was a seven-year-old. So a seven-year-old birthday party is supposed to be a big event, right? Mm -hmm. So the therapist arranged for them to be a parade to go by the youth's house, drop off balloons and presents. And actually the police in New Britain, this was in New Britain, actually the police department also came with all their vehicles and saying happy birthday to the kid and his grandmother who were out on the sidewalk with his little sister. I mean, I have a video of it. It's fantastic. So, you know, we're able to uh, still meet those needs and try to make this as positive a life experience as we can. Yeah. So, so your staff, your employees, they're going the, the extra mile that it takes to, to help people. And, and those are two great stories. Our staff have really stepped up to meet the challenge. You know, they were never probably viewed first line responders as we're seeing now. But in mm -hmm. effect, you know, like medical professionals, uh, they are seen as front, to me, they are frontline responders as well, because without these folks coming to work every day, uh, these young people that were servicing residentially would be really, really challenged and, you know, would be in a really bad place. So, you know, I, I can't be grateful enough for the work they've done. They've really stepped up. Well, I think we all need to be grateful. I mean, our, our hats off to all of your staff and the work that they do that, that is always important. And they're, they're frontline workers too, for sure. So, so, you know, on our behalf, please give them a thank you. I'll do that, you know. And our, within our uh, wood shop, some of the kids, because we're still, residential kids are still coming uh, on some level of schooling with really distance, small classrooms, et cetera. So within yeah. our wood shop, we've made hearts uh, to to uh, put in people's front yards to, you know, thank all the frontline responders and our our kids have actually given them to our own staff, thanking them as part of the process. So they recognize this as well that you know people are really stepping up to help them, and, and I think they're grateful on a lot of levels. Well, we're certainly grateful for for what you guys do, Dan. Listen, if you could have, what is the one ask that you would have for those listening today? I, I think I've got two quick asks, right? So the okay. first thing is, I think, and we've touched on it, is that, you know, understand that the uh, aspect of human services and especially child welfare and behavioral health and education for children is an essential part of our economy. It's an essential part of our operations to make people successful uh, so they could be, have the same opportunities as everybody else. And to, and to go forward. And it's more so important now than ever. So as we put a lot of resources into the front end here, uh, because you know we're trying to help the health issue, let's not forget later on when we're gonna need to help with all of the fallout economically and uh, trauma and anxiety and depression and loss of jobs and loss of educational uh, opportunities for some of our kids. So we can't forget that going forward. So keep that in mind, you know, we're going to need just a safety net, not just for the next couple months, but for a while after that. And secondly, you know, we could use any kind of support uh, for operations and for, uh, you know, technology. And, you know, I think we're gearing up for distance learning even in September, because who knows if this virus is going to come back. So we're going to mm. need students then, and we're going to need to bet new Chromebooks. We're going to need to have new uh, iPhones for families or uh, replacement uh, computers, uh, laptops or, you know, tablets, however we choose to do that for new clients coming forward because, you know, they say this may come back and there's another wave. We have to prepare for that now, you know, for September, October and November, if that does happen. Knock on wood, we'll get some uh, treatment options, but if that's not in place, we, we have to do, we still have to meet our contractual obligations and meet the needs of our uh, clients. So, you know, any type of uh, support for technology would be great. Anything mm -hmm. that they could do to help make off with the loss of our revenue that we've had from our fundraising activities that we've had to cancel. I promise we'll have the golf tournament next year. The, the work you guys are doing is very important. And thank, thanks again, Dan. Uh, before I let you go, just oh, I, one more minute of your time, if you don't mind, sure. because we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. And we do that through a few rapid fire questions. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> so you you ready for that? Sure. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? Uh, Rolling Stones. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Be invisible. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing, Dan? Probably working at my father's old business. He ran gas stations and service stations. I probably would have been in uh, that business, taking over his business. And lastly, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. So, Dan, what does being bold mean to you? To me, uh, being bold, especially in this climate, is, is really to step up when you're needed. You know, uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's easy to uh, see things in a distance and, and not have to get involved. I think this pandemic has caused us to increase our sense of community and support amongst each other. You know, help your neighbor, help the neighbor down the street, help your coworker. And in our case, help our kids, you know. Uh, services for kids are often at the end of the line. Kids don't vote, right? So we have to support them and advocate for them so that their services are in place. And, you know, uh, so for me, it's stepping up and, and being a voice, being an advocate for those in need that really don't have a voice. Awesome, which is what you do every day. And, and again, thank you, Dan, for that. So, so thanks for joining, joining us on this episode today, Dan. Really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. If you have a minute this week, take a look at these incredible organizations that serve our communities, uh, as well as the hundreds of others out there. We're really just scratching the surface on this episode as far as, as, far as not-for-profits go. So as always, thanks for tuning in. This has been a very special episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR.